Well, during these holiday Sundays when so many, as evidence now, are here and there, in and out, uh, I'd like to preach to you from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, and we'll be looking today at chapter 1. Um, we've uh, been considering the Ten Commandments and the Lord's great commandments to love the Lord our God, to love one another, and to... Uh, love each other as I have loved you, uh, obviously wanting to see a change in ourselves and a change indeed in the world as well. But how does such a change take place? Well, we have here in First Thessalonians chapter 1 a very small portrait of, of a time when the world was turned upside down. I'd like to consider it with you and we'll apply it to ourselves also. From First Thessalonians chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, Knowing, brethren, your election, excuse me, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. As you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. Well, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that that same word that came to those people in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance might come to us likewise in such a way. We pray that you would bless it to every heart today according to his or her need. For Christ's sake, amen. It was the 18th century... Uh, revivalist and preacher John Wesley, who once wrote to a fellow believer, saying, Give me a hundred men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw, whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon earth. Well, so it was that three such men arrived at the city of Thessalonica, the capital of Macedonia, it has not been the same since. Theirs was a very brief and tumultuous visit. They started their visit by going to the synagogue, as was their custom, and we read at the beginning of Acts chapter 17 that for three Sabbaths, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Christ, this, excuse me, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. 
some of the Jews were persuaded. And a good number of God-fearing Greeks, we're told, including several leading women. But those who were not persuaded grew angry and jealous. They stirred up a mob. And when they couldn't find Paul and his companions, they dragged a few of the new Christians from the city before the rulers, saying, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and these people have harbored them. Well, they posted bond, but Paul was compelled to leave the city. Paul and his friends were understandably anxious to to leave these brand new believers who were already suffering such persecution. But they need not worry. That brief three-week visit not only left an indelible mark upon the people of Thessalonica, it established a church that rapidly grew and grew until it overcame even the great edifice of paganism. This short letter gives a sense of those wonderful days when the gospel was first making its way out into the world, when churches were being created out of nothing, when every one of the members were Christians but of a day. It was a desperate time, but it was a wonderful time, a confusing and disappointing time, and a time of magnificent triumph. And this is what we need to see as we study this letter over the next few weeks. As one old writer put it, it's not for the pattern of machinery of the church that we ought to go back to this early time, but for a spectacle of fresh and transforming spiritual power. This is what will always attract the apostolic age, the the longing eyes of Christians. The power of the Spirit was energizing in every member The tides of fresh emotion swelled in every breast, and all felt that the dayspring of a new revelation had visited them. Life, love, light were diffusing themselves everywhere. And this is what I'd like for us to take from this brief study of Paul's short letter to the Thessalonians in the coming weeks. This freshness, this vitality, this power of Christian faith and life, and love. Maybe you remember some of you who are married, some of the first days in which you met your spouse-to-be, and how deeply that left an impression on you. Some of the the joy, and the the wonder, and the excitement of that time have carried you through to this day. Maybe on anniversary trips or something, you get to rekindle something of that. Well, I think that we often need our own Christian faith, and life, and love rekindled at a certain way as well, brothers and sisters, and from that new life that has awakened the early Christians and that strengthened them in the face of fierce opposition, indeed changed their city and transformed the world, that same life beats in the heart of every Christian here today. So what Paul had to say to them so long ago is exactly what we need to hear, that we might be a people of, as we read, faith and hope and love. Well, let's start from the beginning. If you want to know what happened in Thessalonica, uh, we we are given an account of Paul's visit in Acts chapter 17. I'll be quoting from that. But it's also given to us in a brief outline here, if I could just give it to you from verses 5 through 8, four aspects of the means that God used to accomplish his victory. First, they received the word from godly men. Second, They received it as the word of God. Third, 
they received it in great affliction, with joy and the power of the Holy Spirit. And fourth, they brought that word to others. Nothing perhaps unexpected, but let's see how it's put to us here. First, they received the word through godly men. These men brought a powerful message that they call in verse 5, our gospel. Not that they made it up, as will be very clear in just a moment, but the good news that they they had been appointed to bring it to the world. And the people are important. For example, you see what it says also at the end of verse 5, you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul had a personal relationship, obviously, with the people there so that they could judge the preacher. And uh, as it's, as it's uh, very clear, by the way, in chapter 2, they had a, he had an affectionate relationship with them. They knew what kind of person he was. They had a personal knowledge of his character. Let me just read a few verses from chapter 2, verse 6 and following, give you a sense of what's going on here. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become so dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God, and you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as, how, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of the Lord who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see, the tenderness of these expressions, being a faithful, authentic, affectionate gospel messenger, was essential for the triumph of the gospel. The people knew the credibility, the integrity of Paul's life and character and Christian spirit. And he said, you know, I wasn't out for any money. I worked with my own hands that I might preach to you the good news. Now, you and I are living in a time when a majority of Christians in our country are attending a church where the vast majority of them will not have any meaningful relationship or even contact with their preachers. In fact, the new trend is to have a video satellite service where big screen is let down in the front, and there is a video presentation of some preacher somewhere who is not present and may never be present. People are looking at a person for a few minutes on a screen somewhere far away speaking. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this is evil or worthless. I mean, the same thing happens essentially every time you pick up a book from an author you don't know. Um, It's fine to learn that way. Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome that he's never visited, and he wants them to read it. So don't misunderstand my point. I'm, I'm simply saying that we shouldn't think that a, that a personal, affectionate, transparent relationship is unimportant to the advance of the gospel. It's a double negative. Let me say it positively. 
A personal, affectionate, transparent relationship is important, is what is blessed by God for the advance of the gospel in their case and throughout the scriptures. My, my children benefit from books. We have lots of books in the house. I hope that they'll learn a lot from books. Do you think that books are a substitute for a loving, nurturing, godly father? The best books or recordings or videos in the world simply cannot substitute for a loving, nurturing gospel minister. And so one of the principal requirements for those who teach and preach, well, the requirements don't have much to do with else besides integrity and godly character because of this point. And it's not just me. It's you. It's the church as well. Paul and his friends were, were in and out. They were gone in a matter of weeks. But then what happened after they left? Well, verse 8, from you the word of the Lord sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. By the way, those are the, uh, the two provinces of Greece. The Romans split it up into two different promises, provinces, Macedonia, Achaia. Uh, so quite a large area. The word of the Lord sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place, your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. The difference that God had made in their lives was so pronounced, it became a spectacle to the world. People were talking about it. Their bold rejection of idolatry, their joy in the midst of their suffering and persecution, their remarkable faith and love and hope. And the result was that many other people believed, not just from what they heard about these people, but what they saw in these people. And the good news of the gospel is advanced in the world when the church is visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. How people even are treated by you as they come in affects how they receive the word preached from me on any particular day. Your life testifies something important about the authenticity and the power of the message preached. Some people out there in the world have a sinful reluctance to open their hearts to God and to his word. But it is through personal love and integrity and authenticity that you can see their resistance melt away. In the early church, the gospel went forth with power from godly men and women. And Paul's description here of the effectiveness and the integrity of faithful ministers and churches applies to us all. Let me just give you a brief testimony before I move on. Many of you will know the name John MacArthur, much maligned pastor these days, I think, who's pastored a church in California for several decades. He, he says, One thing I observed in all my years of ministry is that the most effective and important aspects of evangelism usually take place on an individual, personal level. Most people do not come to Christ as an immediate response to a sermon they hear in a crowded setting. They come to Christ because of the influence of an individual. Now, the church I pastor seeks to foster an evangelistic environment. People are coming to Christ on a regular basis. Almost every Sunday in our evening services, we baptize several new believers. Each one gives a testimony before being baptized. And in the overwhelming majority of instances, they tell us 
that they came to Christ primarily because of the testimony of a co-worker, a neighbor, a relative, or a friend. Occasionally, we hear people say that they were converted in direct response to a message they heard in church or a sermon that was broadcast on the radio. But even in those cases, it's usually owing to the influence of an individual who encouraged the person to listen or brought him to the church in the first place. There's no question that the most effective means for bringing people to Christ is one at a time on an individual basis. Well, surveys back this up, but my point is simply to you, brothers, sisters, it's, it's show and tell. Everybody is passionate about some philosophy or political position or something. What does it do in their lives? What change does it make? Is it attractive? Uh, does it show integrity? Does it make... Does it make people new? We are Christ's ambassadors through whom the word of God is intended to go forth as living examples of Christ's redemption and love. It's a high calling. We fall short. Please don't misunderstand me. But, but what we say is, here is what the gospel does to people. This is not the word of man. Here is the change it makes. It's show and tell. And so it was in Thessalonica. If you wonder, how could they plant a church in three weeks? How could these people come into town and leave such a mark on the, the people of Thessalonica that when they're gone, the church that remains does far more work even than the men who came? Point one. Paul emphasizes the human element in the advance of God's good news in the world. And how much I've been benefited by some of you. Some of your zeal, your wisdom, your counsel, your life, the things that have inspired me in you. I thank you for that, and I seek to be a better example to you as well. Paul emphasizes the human element as God has appointed an incarnate ministry. Second, Paul points out that though they received the word from human agency, they didn't receive it as a human message. And this is the other side that we need to consider. Our second point, they received it as the word of God. They received it as the word of God. Paul emphasizes the divine origin and power of the good news. In fact, he does it frequently, often in passing, but he hardly loses an opportunity to remind the people. You notice how he puts it in verse 8? that uh, from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Or he explains it again in chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works. In you who believe. All right. It's one thing to be a person of integrity. It's another thing to be carrying a message with divine power. God has a word that's powerful, active, life and world changing. It comes through human agency, yes, but it is a word from on high. 
And so the early church, recognizing this, devoted themselves to God's word. They preached it in the synagogues, in the congregation on the Lord's Day, in the open air. They discussed it in the marketplace. They taught it daily in classes at one point. They introduced it to others in homes. They gave their testimony. They told their friends and relations. And so John Calvin was right on target when he said, the Holy Scripture will never be of any service to us unless we are persuaded that God is the author of it. Many other philosophies tell us to be nice, to be good, to be wise people, and they have their own benefits and advantages as well. But we will not be so changed ourselves, says Calvin, unless we come to believe that these words have come to us directly from heaven, as directly as if God had been heard giving utterance to them. Our faith is not established until we have a perfect conviction that God is its author. And so this is why it's helpful to to see the word in action, as it is here in in Thessalonians, as we realize this was not something natural that happened in this city, that uh, this is something supernatural. And And why is it supernatural? Well, godly people brought it, yes. But what they brought is a word from God, and that we ourselves must therefore treasure it and live by it, rely upon it, experience it, and understand what is committed to us, that the word of God would grow mighty and prevail, first of all, in our lives. And by this word, we again may see a great victory in the world for the city of God. So, dear friends, it is not enough enough for, for us to be kind and authentic people, People of integrity, point one, we must receive the word as the word of God. And that is what people need to hear from us. I I read a delightful uh, autobiography a few years ago by uh, Graham Miller, the man who saw wonderful success in missions and evangelism and stood for the word of God in in a day in which the majority of his church in the South Pacific was turning away from it. He had a very perceptive comment, though. He said... You know, people argue and they say things, but I can tell just by listening to people pray what their view of the Word of God is. That is to say, have they received and treasured it as the Word of God? If so, it suffuses their thoughts, their petitions. Jesus indeed said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And so, when you receive it as the Word of God, you, you can't help but, but treasure it and think about it, and it just comes out, surely in prayer. It comes out in teaching and speech and in the course of life. Jesus was the most remarkable example of this himself. A full 10% of the red-letter verses in the Bible contain either a biblical quote or a direct allusion to some biblical event or person or reference in the past. Well, the victory of the gospel in the ancient world was not a victory of men, ultimately. It was a victory of God's good news. We need to understand that, believe that, receive the word, and act accordingly. And we need to be churches and Christians and Christian families who are manifestly receivers and stewards and heralds of nothing less than the word of the living God. That is what happened in Thessalonica. Third, we read 
they received the word in much affliction with joy and the Spirit's power. Verses 5 and 6 here. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul then elaborates in chapter 2, verse 14. Um, You, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. Well, it's obvious, brothers and sisters, from practically any page of the Bible, of the New Testament, certainly, that the Word of God goes forth amidst great opposition, both toward those who herald it and even toward those who receive it. After just three weeks, three weeks in Thessalonica, we read chapter, uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 6, the Jews who were not persuaded became envious and took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, setting the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brethren to the rulers of the cities. They they, they accuse them of treason, of rebellion, acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. They say there's another king named Jesus. And this was the experience everywhere in the empire of that day. And we are also living at a time when we will have to pay some price to be people of integrity, point one, and to testify faithfully to God's word, point two. But I tell you that this has a good effect, that if we receive the word of God joyfully in affliction and persecution here, people will see that it matters. It's real. It has power. People will sit up and take notice. Here's one historian's comment. The joy of the Christians, both in life and death, is closely linked with their patient endurance of scourgings, insults, and martyrdom, which had an incalculable effect in bringing observers to faith. The history of the church for the first three centuries, does show that in places where people bore witness in much affliction, the church greatly multiplied. The blood of Christians is seed, said Tertullian. It was an indispensable part of the victory of the gospel, was and I would say is today. More about that in a minute, though. Another historian writes... The most numerous and successful missionaries of the Christian religion were not the regular teachers, but Christians themselves, in virtue of their loyalty and courage, while they lay in prison, while they stood before judges, on the road to execution itself, they won people for the faith. Some of us were talking a few Sunday nights ago about how the Elliots went to the Alka Indians. about uh, how the men, five men, were uh, st- stabbed to death there on the beach as they were seeking to reach the Alcas to save their lives from the army that was 
determined to come in and destroy them. And that's not their most remarkable part of the story in my view. They, they could well have defended themselves. Um, I, I went to school with Nate Saint's grandson. You know, Nate, Nate died with a pistol in his hand, he even had fired a warning shot. He wasn't about to shoot at the Alka, but he was trying to, he was trying to dissuade them from killing his five companions. But, but then Elizabeth Elliot um, and her friend, they, they, they go and they live with the Alkas and they serve them, the people who killed their husbands. And, and it's the most, most astonishing story. Um, this suffering with joy was and is an indispensable part of victory in the gospel. I, I point this out because today I, I feel that too many Christians are shrill and cranky. Don't look around, just look up here. <laughs> but think. Unjust suffering or persecution is wrong. And today, what, produces boycotts, marches, not all wrong, but it's not an occasion for joyful testimony as it ought to be. It's an occasion for conflict using the weapons of the world, perhaps, which are weak, not mighty for the pulling down of strongholds, as it's written. You might think about the early church, though, and see it's totally different. They didn't show rage in affliction or strife in affliction. You see what it says here? Joy in affliction. Think about them blessing those who are cursing them, who are wishing well to those who are killing them. You think about the things we're reading in the mornings in the book of Acts, right? That when they say, hey, look, we must obey God rather than men, and the council has them beaten, and they leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. You think about Stephen as he's being martyred, as he's being accused by the same people who killed the Lord Jesus and who are about to kill him too, how he not only bears a brave testimony, but his face is like the face of an angel. I mean, this was, you read the early church, this is what so captivated, they couldn't understand why the, the more that they mowed the Christians down, that it seemed like the more joyful and hopeful they became and the faith was just spreading. You think about the tremendous growth of the gospel today in various places. Why is the gospel growing like that in, in China? When, of all places, uh, China's putting the most persecution, well, maybe second to North Korea and a few smaller places, but why is the rapid growth of the church happening at the place where it's suffering the most? You consider rather what's happened in, in Uganda in the last 40, 50 years, where the gospel was so violently opposed by Idi Amin, where the people with bold witness, suffering and dying with confidence and with joy, not at all concerned, not at all intimidated, made Christians by the millions in that country. This is why the church in sub-Saharan Africa is, is, is growing so magnificently. The same is true in China, Korea, you, could, you, you name it, Indonesia. That when we are facing persecution and unjust suffering, in the Holy Spirit, bearing confident witness with joy, with, we read here, faith and hope and love, that the Lord gives us grace to have, even upon our very faces, love for the people who are afflicting us. It bears a testimony that cannot be stopped. 
And so when we face persecution and unjust suffering, we can bear a confident witness with joy in the Lord and peace and so forth. Um, now, I uh, meant to say here, maybe I put it in a, another thing. You, it it uh, seems also that this matter of power, it came to you with power. I'd always read that. I'd always thought that that meant miracles. Um, it came to you with not just in word only, but in power. But uh, then read several people who pointed out that uh, in, the, in the Bible, whenever miracles are referenced, it's always plural for some unknown reason. Powers. Um, power does not seem to be in the singular speaking of anything else. Oh, I think I remember I put it. I think I put it in the conclusion. But uh, the power that it came was with its conviction, with its changing power that the people were so different. Well, let's see. We have four means that God used to turn the world upside down. They received the word from godly men. They received it, as it is in truth, the word of God. They received it in affliction, with joy in the Lord and spiritual power. And fourth, we read here that that word sounded forth to others by means of following their example here. They brought the word to others. Verse 7, you became example to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. All right. So if you ask, how was the world of that day transformed in such a short time? Uh, just a few generations. Uh, t- temples abandoned, right? The, the worship of the, of the Greek pantheon that had stood for centuries was dealt a death blow. Well, the twelve apostles surely took the good news throughout the known world, Thomas to Syria uh, and India, Andrew to, from southern Greece up through the Ukraine and so forth, and you know their names. And perhaps you know the names of people in later centuries who in early medieval times took the good news to other countries, Patrick to Ireland and Columba to Scotland in the sixth century and so forth. But what happened in the meantime? How did Christianity become a major world religion Though illegal and often heavily persecuted for centuries, who was it that did the work? Do you know their names? Celsus, the pagan critic of Christianity, hostile to Christianity in the second century, he gives a wonderful summary of the great missionaries in this early period. He scorns this Christian gospel as a message that it's being spread by women gossiping about Christ at the laundry. It's, it's a religion of weavers and cobblers and fullers and the most illiterate persons who preach this irrational faith, he says, spread by farmers talking to farmers and fishermen to fishermen and slaves to masters. The great uh, historian Philip Schaff, guy that translated that massive set of early church uh, uh, writings, um, it is a remarkable fact that after the days of the apostles, no name of the great missionaries are mentioned until the opening of the Middle Ages, when the conversion of nations was effected or introduced by a few individuals, as St. Augustine in England, St. Boniface in Germany, and so forth, there were no missionary societies, no missionary institutions, no organized efforts 
in the anti-Nicene age. And yet, in less than 300 years from the death of St. John, the whole population of the Roman Empire, which then represented the civilized world, was nominally Christianized. To understand this astonishing fact, we must remember that the foundation was laid strong and deep by the apostles themselves. Christianity, once established, was its own best missionary. It grew naturally from within. It attracted people by its very presence. It was a light shining in the darkness and illuminating the darkness. And while there were no professional missionaries devoting their whole life to this specific work, every congregation was a missionary society and every Christian believer a missionary, inflamed by the love of Christ to convert his fellow man. The example had been set in Jerusalem and Antioch and by those brethren also after the martyrdom of Stephen, who were scattered abroad and went about preaching the word. I think I quoted that recently to the, in the evening service. I hope you don't mind me saying it again. The point being that um, they come in, they have three weeks in Thessalonica, they're driven out. And, and what happened then? What happened in Greece? Something amazing happened. Something you could hardly believe. Herein lies the victory of the Word of God. This is the progression of the gospel that continued down to this very day. I say to you in conclusion, dear friends, we have received the same gospel. And these are the very same means that God has always blessed to ourselves and to others. And I am struck by how strongly Paul expresses his confidence in them. He says in verse 4, Brethren, we know that you are chosen by God. We know your election of God. That's a strong and interesting statement, don't you think? Well, how does he know? How can we know that God is truly at work in a person's life or in the life of a local church? Well, clearly, friends, a power had been unleashed that flowing out of this wholehearted embrace of God's word, Paul mentions their faith, their hope, their love. God's work was so evident to the people throughout Macedonia and Achaia, their rejection of idolatry, their devout lives. They were taking notice of these Thessalonians. What was happening there? The word was spreading about them and through them. And how could this be explained? How could such a large number of people be so quickly convinced of a message so strange and new and supernatural, brought by complete strangers that ran against the entire drift of their culture's thought and morality, which, when believed, immediately brought them the worst persecutions and all kinds of trouble? How could one explain that? The answer, of course, is in this. It was no mere human word. It comes with power, with the Holy Spirit's Spirit and much assurance. And power, is it miracles? As I already explained to you, in the singular, it's not used for miracles. It is another power, no less miraculous, no less wonderful, no less remarkable in its effect. A power that's still advancing, that's still changing lives, that's still reconciling people to God every day. God's power that's for you. It's for you, whether you've never believed or whether you believed it your whole life. Paul and his friends had been so worried. We'll get to that in the letter. What's going to become of this young church so new with such fierce opposition already against it? One person with God is a, is a majority, we find, as somebody said. If God is for you, who can stand against you? 
It is time, therefore, that we rekindle our own joy and confidence and anticipation in God, whose power has no end, a power that we must lay hold of now in the good news that has come to us in Christ. Is that what you need? God's power for you. The same power that changed the lives so remarkably, that changed the church of that city, that changed the world of that day. If that is what you need, then say today, God, I thank you for such great love and power that has come into this world in the person of Jesus, forsaking all. I come to you through him. Cleanse me, forgive me, restore me, and lead me on forever. For I am yours. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do rejoice when we see the freshness and the power of the gospel that came into the world of that day amidst such opposition, with such tremendous rejoicing, with such effect in the people, in the church, in the world. How we long to see it today. How we long to see our lives transformed in faith and hope and love. How we long to see the... uh, the word sounding forth from this small place to a great many places in the world. We know that uh, this is too great for us, Father, except that we have received not a man's word, but your word. We pray that it would take uh, a new root in us and lead us to the joy of everlasting life. May the fulfillment of all that the prophets have spoken that we sang about earlier be seen in the world, and may the knowledge of the glory of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea.